Hi guys, Bella here. Welcome for the bonfire. Hey guys, Hide and Seek is now on Patreon. If you'd like to learn how to support the work we do, please visit www.patreon.com backslash hide and seek podcast. For as little as $5 a month, you can get access to exclusive rewards. Rewards include live events, early access to video trailers, ad-free episodes, never-before-seen videos, behind-the-scenes video and photo content, along with extended and never-before-heard interviews. My team and I would be honored to have you. Again, visit patreon.com backslash hide-and-seek-podcast. Thanks, guys. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. The views and opinions expressed by guests on the Hide and Seek podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views, opinions, or positions of the host or contributors. Hey everyone, this is Sarah. Would you like to take a more active role in the Hide and Seek community? Would you like to share your thoughts with other listeners? Join us in the Hide and Seek podcast discussion group on Facebook. You can find us by searching Hide and Seek Podcast Discussion Group on Facebook. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Material heard on the Hide and Seek Podcast is intended for adult listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Sweet dreams are made of this. 24-Hour News Aid's Brady Gillum went to Sturgis tonight to speak with the missing woman's mother about what may have happened to her daughter. I can tell you where she most likely is. I hadn't seen anybody that I felt comfortable saying anything to until today. The stories they tell are pretty fucked. They're pretty freaking gruesome. I kept... All the text messages, Facebook messages, the messages between me and Brittany, I have all of them. I have everything. 
I told him, I said, I'd kill all them motherfuckers, and I was going to have my people fucking take care of it. I'll just say Britney's name out of nowhere just to see what somebody says. Because this little town around here would be hard to hide something like that. Because eventually everything comes out. To me, some days I don't believe anything happened to her. I think she's in love. This is Hide and Seek, Season 3, Part 3. The final chapter. I'm your host, James Basinger. So my name's Tad Tobias. Um, I have admittedly nicknamed myself the nobody guy because I'm someone who for probably the past 15, 16 years has been interested in nobody homicide cases. That is cases where the victim has never been found. And obviously many of these cases start off as missing persons cases. And the reason I became interested in them was back in 2005 when I was a federal prosecutor in, D- in DC, but I prosecuted homicide cases during the vast majority of my time there, I was given a case that was a missing persons investigation that we believed was the homicide. And ultimately, I ended up helping investigate that case, prosecuting that case. And it was only the second nobody murder trial in the history of the District of Columbia. While I was preparing for that case, I started researching these cases and became very fascinated by them because I like to say murder is the ultimate crime and a no-body murder is the ultimate murder case. And so once that case was done, um, I continued kind of my interest in these things. And even when I left the U.S. Attorney's Office, which I did in 2007, I continued to kind of collect the cases, study them. I started consulting with police and prosecutors across the country on the cases, and I started also teaching conferences about how to investigate these cases, how to prosecute them. My second edition of my book is hopefully coming out later this year um, because it's more cases and more discussion. And it also has a pretty lengthy discussion of my case and some of the challenges that I faced in prosecuting my nobody murder case and investigating it because a lot of those challenges are very similar to what other investigators and prosecutors. I spent some time going on um, podcasts like yours talking about missing people and talking about nobody murder cases and how I can help bring closure to those cases and bring those cases to trial. What's the number one challenge that you run into? Biggest challenge, James, is when you don't have a body, you don't have the best piece of evidence in the case. Typically in a murder case, and I tried 20 homicides when I was at the U.S. Attorney's Office, and this was the only no-body one, but all my other cases, I knew when the murder happened, very roughly. I knew how the murder happened, and I knew where the murder happened. And in a no-body case, you don't have any of that information because you don't know if the person was shot, stabbed, poisoned. You generally don't know the time frame, particularly if it's hard to pin exactly when someone went missing. You don't know when they went missing. And then, of course, you don't know where they went missing. Sometimes in a nobody murder case, you may have such a vast amount of blood at one location. It's pretty clear the person died at this location, but that's kind of the exception. The rule is you don't really know where the, you know, the person was murdered. 
and I liken it to if I'm a detective and uh, my boss came in and said, hey, Tad, there was a bank robbery in the city of D.C. And I say, oh, great. Where? Well, we don't really know where. So <laughs> you got to go check every bank in the city of D.C., which is probably hundreds of banks. That's the difficulty that you just don't have that most basic information that anyone solving a crime would, wa would want to have. That's what makes these cases so especially challenging. D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office is the most unique prosecutor's office in the country because the District of Columbia does not have a district attorney. So the U.S. attorney becomes a district attorney. So it, at the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C., which is the largest U.S. Attorney's Office in the country with over 300 prosecutors, they do everything from shoplifting to homicide. But otherwise, virtually every crime in D.C. is prosecuted by the U.S. Attorney's Office. So while my office did have the traditional things, narcotics cases, white collar crimes, terrorism cases, economic crimes, the biggest part of the office was focused on the local crimes. And that's where I spent the vast majority of my career in what was uh, called D.C. Superior Court because that was really where my interests were. I liked being a federal prosecutor because, frankly, the prestige and the pay was a little better. But I liked really being a DA. That was the part of the job that I really liked a lot. So that's really unique. I, I say to people, I don't know if the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office is the best prosecutor's office in the country because, you know, Southern District in New York or Manhattan DA or LA DA may say they're the best, but it is clearly in my mind the best place to be a prosecutor because you literally can go from doing homicides and then all of a sudden I switch and I'm doing public corruption or I'm doing large-scale narcotics RICO cases. It's the full panoply of crime in one office. And there's really no other office that does that in terms of the breadth of crimes that we do and the seriousness of the crimes that we do. Some of my colleagues who are great homicide prosecutors, they went to public corruption. They went to economic crimes. They did large-scale narcotics cases. It is a great experience. And then, of course, you have appellate work. Um, you have a civil section in there. So you really just can be um, virtually any type of prosecutor that you want to be in that office. And that's what, to me, makes it such a valuable experience and, and, and makes the people who work there very highly coveted um, when they come out of that office, too. Do you think that no-body homicide cases have increased? And if so, why? Why do you think that is? I absolutely believe that they have increased, and I can show you statistically why. So right now, according to um, my uh, table of cases, there have been roughly 578 no-body homicide trials in the United States since the early 1800s. Half of those cases, more than half, have been tried since the year 2000. So in the last 23 years, we've tried half the cases. And before that, we tried half going all the way back to the early 1800s, you know, cases where a ship would come into port and they'd be like, where's the captain? And the crew would be like, well, I don't know, because they tossed his ass overboard during a mutiny. <laughs> um, those were the early no body murder cases. So um, it's very clear statistically that the vast majority of cases have happened since 2000 and that it's accelerating in terms of number of cases. But the reasons for that are really twofold. 
number one DNA has just exploded in terms of ability to take very small amounts of evidence and reach very big conclusions about it. You know, what the person looks like, even unknown DNA, matching to other people, genealogical matches we're doing now that would be have been unheard of five years ago. The bigger reason, though, I think is we are all so electronically connected and we leave so many electronic trails behind that it is much easier to say, hey, Tad's not missing. He's dead because he's not texted his kids. His location has never gone off. His GPS isn't showing anything. He's not pinging off any cell towers. He's not earning any money because it's got to be tied to his social security or his bank accounts. It's so much easier now to show that. So that means the police know much more quickly that Tad's not missing. He's probably dead and enables them to do their investigation much more quickly. And it enables them to prove much more quickly where Tad isn't. 50 years ago, you could kill your wife and say, oh, she ran away to Mexico or Europe, and it just became much harder to find that person. Well, we all know when you fly, it's all tracked. When you get off the plane, it's all tracked. If you if you go places like London, where there are um, closed-circuit TVs everywhere, it's all tracked. It's very, very hard to disappear in this day and age. And so the, the obvious conclusion is, unless the person walked away purposefully, it's much more likely that they were actually murdered. That's always like the common phrase that, you know, it's not a crime to go missing. It's the truth, but it's also like a hard thing for people to ac accept. Like you said, we, we leave so many footprints behind from a digital aspect, right? That we, from traveling, banking, communication, social media, everything is online. When someone goes missing, what do you need to see in order for you guys to say, I mean, what what are you looking for to say this should sure. be transitioned from just a missing to a nobody? Because usually yeah. that's what we're dealing with. And what, what I've seen is I, these people didn't have the financial means to make this abrupt change. And that's a really good question, James. And that's something I think detectives struggle with. And one of the things I teach, the vast majority of missing people return. It's like 98% or something. And the number of adult females, which are very common missing person and victim in nobody murder cases that um, actually run away or disappear voluntarily is like 12%. It's a very small percentage. So when you start playing those numbers and you look and you say, is my missing person a 16-year-old girl who's run away before, having trouble at school, is maybe somehow involved in drug trade, sex work trade, all of that? Or is my missing person a 48-year-old female with three kids at home who didn't show up to work? You immediately have to start saying, this does not compute. This is not someone who is typically missing. And it doesn't mean that the 16-year-old wasn't murdered because obviously she may be in a lifestyle <clears throat> that may lend itself, unfortunately, to a criminal element. But what it, when you start playing the percentages is to say, this is not a person who typically just disappears off the face of the earth. And I've never liked the states that say, oh, you got to wait a certain amount of time. No, that's ridiculous. Why should there be any sort of time that you have to wait? Oh, you got to wait 24 hours to report or 48. Well, you know what? I got a bloody scene here or I know I was supposed to meet her for lunch and she's never missed a lunch ever in the 
28 years that I've known her, and I'm not going to wait 48 hours. Um, so I, I think those rules are dumb. I think they're antiquated. Um, honestly, I think a lot of them go back to when um, women were considered property of men. And so as our children, as we're children, and I think it goes back to we're not going to do anything because man, this is your responsibility, and we're only going to get involved if we need to get involved. Um, and I think that just can't be the case. It has to be evidence-based. It has to be what is this victim about, and what are the chances that they haven't really run away? Because I always say to detectives, if someone is a missing person, if someone is um, missing and you treat it like a homicide case, there's no downside, right? They show right. up yay, she's back. This is great. But if you treat it like a missing persons case and they're murdered and the murderers had 48 hours because they, you don't do anything, that's a disaster. You know, the, the show, the first 48, they basically say, you know, in the first 48 hours is a 50%, you know, drops by 50% chance, whatever. All those stats are actually bullshit. But there is something you know, in your gut, you know, the longer it goes, the harder it is to solve. Yeah. But there shouldn't be any rule. It should be strictly evidence based on, you know, who this person is. And we'll make mistakes. We'll treat cases that are murders as missing persons. We'll treat cases that are missing persons as murders. But better to err on that side. And the other thing I point out is in most police departments, a person who's a missing persons detective or officer is different from a person who's a homicide investigator, particularly as you get to larger departments. Your homicide detectives, in theory, should be your best, most experienced investigators. And your missing person, not to denigrate them, but they're not. They're not the most experienced. They tend to be more junior people with less experience on investigating crime in general. And they're just not going to go through as many steps that a homicide person would go to immediately. If you just think the person is missing, you're not gonna worry about getting their cell phone records or their cell tower records, or maybe trying to do a ping on their phone and say, where's their phone right now? But if you think it's a homicide, you're gonna do all those things right away mm -hmm. because that's gonna give you good information. I think it should be based upon evidence, right? Yes. That rule of X amount of years, that's something I've been talking to Sarah about before we jumped on this call. And I don't understand the five year, the seven year. If yeah. like, what do you need to see to say, hey, guys, this this isn't right? With us having as many cases that have gone to nobody homicide, and you know, cases since what year was it? 2000, oh, that 2000 they, uh, half of them have happened half of since them, the year two thousand, yeah. which is kind of an easy dividing line. And and when you mention the years, that's another frustration for me because I have a lot of families say. Would it help if we got them declared, you know, dead because it's been five years or seven years? And the thing that's frustrating about that is, number one, I don't think it makes much of a difference from a criminal investigative standpoint. What? The detectives either know she's dead or she's not dead. And, and having a court declare in a civil matter that, oh, we rule her to be dead, that's for civil cases. That's so that, you know, a will can go through or insurance all of that, which makes sense. I frankly think five or seven years is too long, but that has nothing to do with your criminal investigation, which should again be driven by the evidence. So while I tell people, look, if you can get a civil court to declare her dead, um, that's helpful, but it's such a small little tick that I don't think it helps much. It may help you civilly because then you can kind of move on with your life and things like that. But from a criminal investigative standpoint, it shouldn't make any difference.
who's the decision maker for that? Does it uh, detectives desk? So usually for that civil decision, it's a court. You would go into court as the family of the missing person and say they've been missing five years, seven years. Can you declare them legally dead? Yes. For the detective, um, to me, it, it shouldn't make a difference. You either have the evidence to know they're probably dead, not missing, or you don't. And so the addition of that, to me, doesn't add much to a criminal investigation. That was one of my questions. If if having somebody legally declared dead would, would help, and I guess probably not, really. Not, no, not, not to be clear. It doesn't help the criminal investigation, but I, I do think there is some benefit, sadly, for the family mm-hmm. to say, eh, it's, it's some finality now. We know she's not likely to come back. Most people know in their heart because they know, but it does give them a little bit of finality and maybe freeze up some life insurance or something like that. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Part of the reason the the cases increase is technology. So that that makes me wonder if the timeline between disappearance, arrest, and trial becomes shorter. Yes, absolutely. That's one of the things I've really noticed since I've been doing this since whatever, 2005, I've noticed a great shrinking between disappearance, arrest, and time of trial. Over the last couple of years, we've had some cases that have gone through that timeline in like a year, which is unheard of. We've had cases that go through in two years. 20 years ago, you'd never see that because an important element of the prosecution's proof was, look, it's been seven years. It's been 15 years. It's been 20 years and nobody's heard from her. We have proof that she's dead. That is not so much the case now because, you know, if something were to happen to me, my kids would say, our dad texts us at least a couple times a week in the worst case scenario. And they would know if we haven't heard from him in a month and if we've texted him and he hasn't texted back, there's something seriously wrong. And they would be able to convey to the police through through their text messaging history, he's never not responded to our text. That really makes a difference because now the police know, okay, not only are we getting the evidence faster, we're going to be able to show to a jury every time these two girls texted their dad, he texted back no later than, you know, three hours later or something like that. That's very powerful evidence to show a jury who also, by the way, texts, phone calls, knows all of this technology themselves and knows in their own life, oh, yeah, if I texted my kid and I didn't hear from them for 24 hours, I'd panic. If I didn't hear from them for a week, I'd be going out of my mind. And so people realize that as well. And that has caused a great shrinking in that timeline. Does this mean that that the number of cases that actually go to trial increases? 
So I would say anecdotally, Sarah, I think that's true. I think prosecutors are bringing more cases. When I wrote um, the first edition of my book in 2014, there were two states that I could not find they'd ever had a no-body homicide. It was New Hampshire and somewhere else. Now we know all 50 states, all the territories, D.C., Puerto Rico, all those places have cases. The number of cases is clearly expanding. Um, it used to be you would hear prosecutors who would say, nobody, I'm not bringing a case. Yeah. You hear that occasionally now, but it's very rare. Most prosecutors are really basing it on, I either have a good case or I don't have a good case. And don't get me wrong, there are obviously many, 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 many missing persons cases that you can't make as nobody murder cases because the evidence is just not there. And I've never had a problem with a prosecutor saying that. What I did have a problem with, particularly when I first started doing this, there were a lot of prosecutors who'd say, I'm not taking the case. There's nobody. I'm not doing it. And in some states, New York and Texas being the prime example, it used to be you couldn't bring a case without a body. That has since changed. And so I do think the technology, the ability to determine much more quickly someone is dead, not just missing, has led to an increase in cases and will continue to lead to an increase in cases. I think prosecutors, thankfully, you get more of them who do the cases, you get more of them who hear about the cases, and they're willing to take more of a risk to, um, to bring that case to trial. Because, as I instruct people, there's an 87% conviction rate on nobody murder cases that go to trial, which seems completely counterintuitive, right? I just sat here and said how goddamn hard these cases are. But the fact is, when you bring that case to trial, you're going you're gonna to likelihood of having a conviction rate. So 87% in nobody murder cases versus about 71 in what I call your run-of-the-mill homicide cases nationwide, which is still a very high you know, conviction rate. And part of that, I think there's two reasons that the conviction rate is high. One, prosecutors don't bring weak no-body murder cases to trial because they know, hey, the defense is so obvious. We don't even know she's dead, let alone that this dude sitting over here did it. Um, and two, most no-body murder cases, something like 53, 54 percent, are what I call um, domestic, husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, ex-boyfriend, ex-girlfriend, parent, child. The victim and the suspect are often very obvious. You know, there's those T-shirts that say the husband did it. Well, that's yeah. kind of fucking accurate most of the time. That's what also I think makes that conviction rate high. It, I'll use a non-nobody murder case. But if you have a dead female in a house and you know the husband is estranged and they have a bitter relationship and their child custody, well, who's the number one suspect? It, it's obviously that guy. It doesn't mean he did it, but that's who you're going to start with. And, and usually when you start with him, then you start finding everything out and you're like, oh, I got this great evidence. Um, so that's why I think the conviction rate is very high. But that's also something I talk to prosecutors about to say the hardest part is getting the case to trial. But once you're there, your, your odds are pretty good. That's interesting. I listened to uh, one of your interviews you did with a, another podcaster. One of the things you said, and I was like, that's a really cool perspective. And you said, uh, I'm not really fond of the idea of when prosecuting attorneys say they've never lost a case because they're not attempting at taking shots at tough cases. Yes. And knowing when from a prosecuting attorney's perspective, when do you say, okay, I have enough circumstantial evidence to, to, to do something with this? Can you give some examples of circumstantial evidence in your past that you can say this is the example of what we've looked for, what we used? 
Yes. So I think those are, are both really excellent questions. So I think you first start as a prosecutor, you start with what are my ethical obligations to make a case? And for most prosecutors, it's that I must have a greater than 50% chance of proving guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, which is our highest legal burden. It's the highest legal burden we have in all of our um, justice system. Once I'm comfortable that I have a greater than 50% chance of convincing a jury of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, then you have to say sort of from my evidence, what do I realistically have? And most no-body murder cases are circumstantial cases, that it is rare, not not um, not never, but it's rare to have someone come forward and say, oh, yeah, I was there when Tad killed so-and-so. Um, because, as I noted earlier, most cases are domestic. And when it's domestic, it's you and your girlfriend, you and your wife, you and your ex-wife, maybe you and your child. Um, and there aren't other people there. And that also relates to the fact that you were able to dispose of the body, which is difficult, right? It's not easy. You got to right. get rid of 150, 200, maybe 250 pounds of right. bones and flesh and teeth and hair. And you got to get rid of it. And you got to have time and space and the ability to do it. So it tends to be it's just the two of you there. There's someone else there. It's like, well, now I got a witness to this, and that's not great. So most cases really are circumstantial. There's a whole variety of circumstantial evidence, but most of the time in a no-body case, there's really what I call three types of circumstantial evidence. Number one is forensics. So it can be it can be DNA, it can be hair, it can be fiber, it can be cell tower records, right? That's classically, that's not direct evidence, it's forensic evidence. It lends itself to a discussion of, I found Tad's phone pinging on this street. Well, that probably means Tad was there. Not definitely, though, because maybe I left my phone there, or maybe someone else had my phone, but that's the type of number one forensic evidence you get. Number two is a confession to friends and family. And that includes jailhouse informants. I told someone about it. You know, I got rid of that bitch. I got tired of her. I, you know, threw her out in the woods. And then number three is confession to police. Those are the three most common types of circumstantial evidence. One of the things that I talk about that I argued many times myself is to lay people circumstantial evidence seems like some lesser quantum of evidence, less good evidence, right? And I always give them the analogy that let's say um, when you go to bed, you look out your window and it's snowing. And you go to bed, you wake up the next morning and there's snow covering your lawn, there's snow covering your sidewalk. You knew that it snowed because you saw it last night. You saw direct evidence of that. But let's say in fact on that night, you go to bed, you look out your window, it's not snowing. You get into bed, go to sleep, you wake up the next morning, and there's snow on the ground. That is circumstantial evidence that it snowed. It's not direct. You didn't see it snow, but you see the snow on your sidewalk and your grass. Now, is it possible in some crazy world that a Hollywood company came and spread snow all over your yard? That's possible, but that's not reasonable. That's not yeah. likely. And that's how you show people that in your everyday life, you use this circumstantial evidence, and it's just the same as direct. And that's a jury instruction in most jurisdictions, right? They say you are to treat circumstantial evidence the same as direct. So that's why I spend a lot of time talking to 
um, prosecutors is they don't fear circumstantial evidence. You're going to learn when you when you pitch it this way to a jury, they're going to understand it's exactly the same as direct evidence. I've honestly said I've had that perspective. Like it's less right. It's less good evidence, and it's not. It's absolutely not. It's uh, you know, and lay people say that oh, I only got circumstantial evidence against me, but it's not. It's the same level of to be treated by the jury as direct evidence. And that's particularly important in, in no-body cases because, as I said, you're, most of the time you're not getting direct evidence. I saw Tad do something, and I came in and testified about it, right? I had a film of it. I watched him kill her, and then we cut her up, and I filmed it. That never happens, never, right. ever happens. Most no-body murder trials are long trials because not only are you building up all your evidence, you're also showing all these reasons why she's not alive anymore, no bank records, didn't work, social security never used again. Um, I have cell tower records. I have things the defendants said. They're very evidence intensive cases. And another analogy I use with prosecutors and I've used and um, friends of mine who've tried no body cases I've used is a puzzle, right? You have all these pieces and you make a puzzle and there's gonna be missing pieces in that puzzle, but it doesn't matter. If I have a big 500 piece puzzle, I might be missing three or four pieces. Who gives a shit? You can see the picture. You can mm -hmm. see exactly what it is. It doesn't matter that you're missing three or four pieces. And you know why you're missing three or four pieces? Because that dude didn't want you to have the pieces. He didn't want you to know where the body was. He didn't want you to know all these things. So he's the one hiding the puzzle pieces, not me. Yeah. Um, and you can use that argument very effectively. You talked about like the first, the the three, you know, confession yeah. to a friend, family member. Yep. First case that happened. Police and forensic. Yep. He did the he did two of them. He confessed to the police and to the friend. Oh. Wow. But what happens wow. when they recant their confession? And that's the to me, it's pretty powerful. One thing I argue to, you know, police and prosecutors all the time is you have to understand that when you catch the defendant in a lie, which here they could, you said this, now you said this. That's a lie. We are so jaded in law enforcement that we don't treat lies the way jurors slash lay people treat lies. And I'll give you an example. When my girls were young, uh, one day they came up to me, Daddy, Daddy, what did you do at work today? And I said, well, girls, I sat at my desk and the detectives brought in people who lied to me all day. Because that's what you do as a prosecutor, right? You bring people in, ma'am, Mr. Tobias, we didn't see anything. And then they go, well, if I saw something, I didn't see the actual shooting because I turned away at the last minute. Well, if I was looking at them, the streetlight wasn't on, so I couldn't really see who it is. They just lie, lie, lie all day. And we get used to that, and we get a nerd to that in law enforcement. And you have to teach detectives and prosecutors, that's our world. If you are presenting a case and you're showing someone this suspect slash defendant said this on this date, this on this date, told this person this thing and this person that thing, that's four lies. And you know what we were talking about? The murder of his girlfriend. Who would lie 
about the murder of their girlfriend if they didn't do it. No one has any incentive. If my girlfriend went missing and you know was subsequently probably killed and I had nothing to do with it, I'd do anything in my power. And I wouldn't lie about anything. I'd say, come over to my house, search my house, do whatever you want. Even if I knew yeah. I was a suspect, I'd say, come on, I got nothing, nothing to lose. And I think law enforcement loses track of that. And one of the things I tell people when I review cases, I keep a separate section of my report called defendant's lies. List all of his lies, any provable lies, or list when he's told different stories about what happened, because that always happens. That's going to be damning to a jury. Yes, there are cases where people lie about things when they weren't involved in the murder. And the best case for that is the murder of Chandra Levy, which was a young intern in D.C. that happened. And the police suspected a congressman did it, Gary Condit, right? Well, Gary Condit Mm -hmm. lied about his relationship with her. Well, he lied because he was a politician who was having an extramarital affair. He didn't kill her. And they got so focused on that. So there are exceptions to that rule. But for the most part, people don't lie about something so important. My wife is missing, my girlfriend is missing, my child is missing, they're not gonna lie. So when you catch them in a lie, that's a good time to say, well, you know, it's like the record scratch. Wait a second, what's going on here? Why would someone lie about something so important? So lies should be much more damning and in front of a jury than we think in law enforcement where we're used to people lying to us all day and night. If you're saying one lie, two lies, three lies are a big deal for a jury, they would lose, I mean, lose their yes. shit if they saw what she said. Right. And if and if you knew, if you think about, okay, if I'm a prosecutor and I have a, a simple poster board and I have all the lies written and I stick them on Velcro as we go through, how does that look to a jury? Because you say to the jury, what possible excuse could you have to lie about this and, and and let him come up with it because obviously he doesn't have to testify at trial, but let him come up with it. You know, Gary Condit ultimately came up with a good explanation because, look, I'm a fucking congressman and I'm cheating on my wife. I don't want the my voting public to know about it. And if he had gone on trial, he would have said that. And people would have been like, well, yeah, that makes sense because you lost your right. next election. But most people are going to be forced now to take the stand and try and explain these lies somehow, which is never good for them. But I think in the law enforcement community, we undersell these things so much that we don't think they're as serious. And if you think about it, what is a good reason that I would lie about my missing spouse or girlfriend or ex-girlfriend that that isn't inculpating? Mm -hmm. There's very few. You have to kind of work your brain to come up with some. How do you, if, if you're dealing with a detective or law enforcement that is in that mindset that, you know, the lies are, you know, the everyday and you just, they learn to accept them. How do you refocus that? How how do you begin to paint that picture? These lies do mean something and these lies are lies for a reason. I think two ways, Sarah. Number one, based on my own experience of saying, look, I was a prosecutor for 12 years. I tried 50 plus jury trials. I know what I'm talking about. I know that when you point out lies, it sends a very, it puts the defendant in a very bad light, number one. And then number two, I can point them to any amount of cases over the years to say, let's go look at cases in your jurisdiction. In my book, I list 
every case in every state that I can find. Go look at those cases. These lies matter. The evidence in this case may have some forensic evidence, may have some lies. It's just, it's common sense. And I think lots of times, even we're in court, which is an artificial atmosphere, but we forget, guided by evidence rules, we forget common sense. If you show someone people are lying and lying and lying, that makes me say, I don't like that person. And why are they lying? They're lying to cover up. Why do we all lie, right? You have an affair, you lie about it. I didn't have a drink officer. No, I had no drinks tonight. And you know, you're wasted in your car. We all lie. And why do we lie? To cover up something we did. We don't, you know, occasionally we tell little white lies. You look great in that dress, honey. But for the most part, our lies are to protect ourselves because we are at heart selfish creatures. And so you can, you know, argue that common human experience to a jury to say, is he telling a white lie because his wife is wearing, you know, something that doesn't look good on her? Or is he telling a white lie that, no, I didn't talk to her that night. She wasn't at my apartment, which is completely contradicted by the forensic evidence, because he knows if he's the last person to be seen with her, that's that's not a good look for him. That's problematic. What I tell um, police is you can make a nobody murder case. I'm, you know, living testament of that and all my research, but it's always better to have a body. That's what you want. So you should always be looking for a body. And there are some cases where the murder is very obvious right away. You can maybe wrap it up, you know, within a year or two years. Most cases aren't like that. But, you know, this case is a good example. She went missing in 2018 in Michigan, you know, probably a little bit more cooler climate than most places, so the body might last a little bit longer, but we're at five years now. Are we realistically going to find a body? Probably not after five years. That's probably the, my, it's probably a good dividing line. If it was less than five years, I'd say, yeah, you might have a chance. Maybe you find clothes, some other things. But if this case was 10 years out, you're not going to find anything 10 years out maybe some things that last very long, bones and teeth, but for the most part, 10 years. And if this case was in Florida after 10 years, don't waste your time. You're not finding anything. Um, So to me, that's really the dividing line of how likely are you to find a body? But it's still based on the evidence. If I have a really strong case and it's only been two years and I'm in Alaska I'd still say, base it on the evidence. Yeah, you might find a body, but if you've got strong evidence, go to trial. Why not? You know, if you've got strong evidence, you think you're going to get a conviction, don't wait around for a body because sometimes the evidence can be so strong, getting a body doesn't mean that much more. As I mentioned earlier, I tried 20 um, homicide trials when I was in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. My no-body case was the strongest one of all, easily. I had a confession. I had forensic evidence. I had a confession to police. I had a confession to friends. I had so much evidence. It was like the only thing I didn't have to do was put on a medical examiner. And back then in D.C., the medical examiner sucked. But it was the strongest case I had. So if you have a case like that, you again base it on the evidence and say, am I going to wait around a little longer? But what I do tell police is, You have to show what you did to look for the body. You cannot be sitting there at the trial and say, 
eh, we didn't do that much to look for the body. You got to show what you did. You got to show searches you undertook. You got to show your grid map. This is the day we did it. This is how many volunteers we had. This is the area we covered. We got this crazy wild goose tip. We went and checked it out. We followed it. You got to show all of those things. You got to convince a jury that you made a good faith effort to really try and find the body. And that's important. It's actually one of the things that they did, they are doing with this case is they are going to a lot of the places that they're being told to go to. Good. But I've never ran into a case or ever watched a case such as Brittany's where they don't, they missed questioning the, the husband, mm. how he felt through the gaps. I don't know. Five years, you know, we're nearly five years later. He still hasn't been formally interviewed. Obviously, like you said, anytime someone goes missing, you're going to look at husband, wife, they're, they're, they're natural suspect right away. Yeah. It's just how it goes. Absolutely. I had a, um, a friend of mine, a guy I used to teach with, he's now a judge out in California, and he had a case involving um, a missing woman, and they were boy, boyfriend and girlfriend. They had a very violent relationship. They had each been arrested for assaulting the other. That's how crazy this relationship was. And when she went missing, of course, same thing. They go to him. Well, he's got an unbelievable alibi. He was at a bachelor party, and he was here and here and here, and they eliminated him. And it was good that they didn't spend a ton of time focusing on him because she was killed by someone else, a complete stranger. She meant gambling at a casino. And if they had wasted too much time on him, they would have lost the camera footage from the casino, which was wiped out every 30 days or whatever. And that was key to the whole case. And so I always say to um, police and prosecutors, you can you can go with a theory, but you have to follow the evidence. It's the evidence that takes you where you need to go. Nothing wrong with starting with the theory. Like if I got to pick between, you know, 10 people who are my suspects, I'm going to pick the husband. I'm going to pick the ex-boyfriend. I'm going to start there, but I'm not going to have blinders on. I'm going to make sure I'm looking at all of my people. In that case, a perfect example. If they had spent two weeks running down all the shit about the boyfriend, they could could have lost that camera footage and that would have been critical to the case. They never would have solved the case because this guy was a, com was a rare nobody case, complete stranger on stranger. He ended up putting a, uh, probably a roofie in her drink and ended up walking her out to his car, put her in the car, murdered her and dumped her body somewhere that's never been found. When we're talking about, you know, husband, wife, that, that kind of thing. The closer the perpetrator, the the harder they try and hide the body. Yes, because if, you know, most nobody murderers are not people who have committed crimes before, with the exception of many of them, have committed domestic abuse before. But they're not people. My defendant was was an exception because he had an incredible, incredibly long criminal history of violence. But most of them are not, right? And part of it is because... Lots of these crimes are crime of passion, they're crimes of opportunity, but the closer they are to the person, they know logically I'm going to be a suspect. If, you know, my wife goes missing, I know because I'm not stupid that they're going to think I did it and they may be right. And so I really have to work to get rid of that body. You know, the, 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 the case that has never in the history of mankind been a no-body murder case is I'm a burglar. I break into someone's house because I think they're not there. They're actually there. I shoot and I kill them and I say, oh, shit, I got to get rid of this body. 
Well, no, no one knows you broke into their house. There's no way you're going to hang around and try and dispose of a body in a strange location. That never happens. It's I'm arguing with my girlfriend. We get into it. I punch her. Her head hits a glass table. She's knocked unconscious. She dies. I think, oh, shit. Everyone's going to know I did it because everyone, you know, her friend knew we were on a date tonight or they, everybody knows we live together. I got to get rid of that body. That's why they have the most incentive to get rid of the body. And to be honest, a lot of no body murder defendants are very controlling. And there is an element of if I get rid of this body, I still control her and her family will never know where she is. I'm the only one who knows where she is. There's a, definitely an element of that in a lot of these no-body murders. In your book, you mentioned that defendants in no-body homicide cases are a rare breed. Yeah, because they're very different. They don't generally commit crimes. This is the crime that they committed, and it's hard to get rid of a body. I mean, I've been in numerous autopsies. These guys have forearms like Popeye, right? It's a very physical labor. And think about the mentality of I've just killed someone that at some point in my life, presumably I loved, and now I got to cut them up. I got to put them in a bag. I got to dump them, bury them, throw them in the in a body of water. That's a you know that's a tough type of mentality to be able to do that. It's a difficult mentality. Most of us could not do that, could not dispose of the body of a loved one, even if you got so angry. And so that does say kind of what that mentality is like. It's different than most of us are are wired. And like I think I said to you all, I'm happy to work with the police on this case. I know very little about it. And I always say I'm willing to work with the departments about it. Also means I would never talk to you guys ever again about the case, but don't take that personally um, because that's part of the deal that once I work with the police, I don't talk about it at all. But I have to be invited in by them. And and that's why we haven't talked about the real specifics of the case at all. I'm very hesitant to ever criticize people because I'm not on the inside. I don't know what's there. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I can have my opinions about what should or should not have been done, but I tend uh, to try having been in those boots myself not to criticize people from outside the investigation. I think James' first season um, for Nancy Moyer, I don't know if you're familiar with that name, but uh, Washington. The name does actually sound familiar, yeah. Yeah, that's the case he was referring to where there was a, a confession, a recanted confession. Like I said, I you're always welcome to reach out to departments or reach out to families, but as long as everybody understands, I don't reach out myself. I have to be asked by the police because otherwise they're like, okay, who's this psycho calling us who calls himself the nobody guy? That seems weird. <laughs> People have asked me, have you ever been you know, rejected? And I said, yes, a very small number of times when they initially reached out. And I said, okay, can you give me your entire case file? One department said, "Uh, we can't really do that. We can give you some stuff. And I said, I I got enough cases. I can't work unless I get the entire file. Another department said, well, what do you want to know about the case? And I was like, well, (laughs) you know, how how am I supposed (laughs) to figure that out? Like, you know, well, when did she go missing? And, you know, like, come on, this is ridiculous. It's like 20 questions, you know, the old game. I'll be totally honest. It's insecurity. There are a lot of departments, not a lot, 
there are departments that are very insecure and don't want to have to show their investigation to others. But that number is completely overwhelmed by the number of departments who have no problem with saying, we're going to send this stuff to Tad. We're going to talk to him about it. We're going to welcome his help. And I don't, you know, I'm no fucking genius or anything. It's just I have one narrow area of expertise that I've seen over and over and over. And I don't charge anything. So you get what you paid for, maybe. But I know how these cases tend to play out. And I can tell you that's a case that can go to trial. That one's not ready. That one needs one more thing. And I have forever been impressed by the amount of work people have done, by the dedication of some of these detectives to these cases. I mean, they treat them like it's their daughter or their mm -hmm. son, and that's really moving to me, the passion I get. And I know detectives all over the country, and every you know few weeks I get new ones who say, can you help me on this case? And I have two cases I'm working now, and I'm fiercely trying to do them on top of my, on top of my day job and on top of a family and all of that. But I am I'm rarely not impressed by the amount of passion that these folks have to say, I want to solve this case. And there are exceptions to it. You know, I have departments who don't want to share, don't want to talk about it, don't want to use free expertise, whatever. I get it. I'm not hurt by it. I got plenty of stuff. But it does say to me, what what are you hiding? You know, and I've had detectives who've taken over cases, I've who who point out that Ugh, this was kind of screwed up from the beginning. And I've had detectives who have said, We we haven't done this from the beginning the way we should, but we want to make it right and do it now. That's all you can ask for people to yeah. say, Don't yeah. don't be nervous or shy about what happened before. It may not be you, it may have been you. You didn't know you're a rookie detective and you're doing a murder case, you never done a murder case. Most detectives say to me, we've never done a no-body murder case. And I said, I get that. I was a rookie once. Be open to listening to other viewpoints. When you build your, your investigative team, you have to have people of all different levels of ages, experiences, gender, all of that. Because there's a classic story I tell that I won't bore you with, but it involves missing bras and the people on the case realized that the woman who was missing had packed everything but bras and immediately her sisters noticed she didn't pack any bras i guarantee you there is not a goddamn guy in the world who would have noticed oh yeah she didn't pack her bras <laughs> fuck no they never no. would have noticed that <laughs> they were like pants shirt yeah yeah, underwear, yeah. Sock. <laughs> and that's why you have to have this breadth of experience of people to say you know, we have different perspectives and why you need young people in this day and age to not go to some of the young people in your department and say, OK, remind me again, how does TikTok work? What would they be yeah. posting on Instagram? All of that stuff is super, super important. And you just can't be someone like me, old white guy saying, oh, I'm going to solve it myself. So be open to other perspectives and other people helping you. It's not diversity for diversity's sake. It's diversity for what diversity is intended to be, which is the strength and the, the diverse views and looking at things. And that's really, really critical. And don't be afraid of asking other people. And I, most police departments have fewer than 30 officers. My brother was a police officer in the town where we grew up. They had like 45 officers. He had two freaking no-body cases in a department of 45 police officers. He was not scared to ask other people for help. 
There's no shame in saying we've never had a no-body murder case before. Well, you know what? Most departments haven't. There's been 576 that have gone to trial, and I guarantee there's about 18,000 police departments nationwide. Most departments have no experience with it, and there's no shame in asking for help. I've probably worked on 50 no-body murder cases over the years, and you know, some successful, some still pending, maybe one or two not successful that went to trial and were acquittals, but but most of them, and I think they would tell you I'm, you know, I'm I'm an honest broker. I'll tell them what I think. I don't talk about the cases. You're not going to find me quoted in the media on cases that I work on. That's just not. I know that's not the way that that it works. And it's free. Tell them that. Lots yeah. of police forums like to hear that shit. It's free. Oh, you don't yeah. cost anything. <laughs> I don't really like that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'll let them know. The interview you just heard was a turning point for me. When Sarah and I finished the interview, I looked at her and said, wow, there were so many parts of our discussion that solidified things for me. His points of reference, his confidence and clarity and his ability to speak from a place of understanding in a straightforward, no bullshit kind of way. It was a game changer for me. As Tad spoke, memories of different interviews floated through my mind. Tad made an incredible offer to Thurston County and St. Joseph County for Nancy, for Logan, and for Brittany. I vowed to share this incredible offer with both counties. Tad is available to help detectives. His expertise and his knowledge is at their disposal. However he can help, he's 100% willing. All they have to do is reach out and make contact with him. And he'll do it, pro bono. Free, no cost. I hope you're listening. Because it's time. Do it for the victims. All of them. Do it for the father suffering with grief over losing his baby girl. Do it for the mother endlessly searching darkness for her child. Do it for the sister who wishes Brittany was sitting next to her, singing. Do it for her brother who doesn't want to forget his sister. Do it for the grandmother who left this world not knowing where her granddaughter is. Do it for the children who will one day be adults and want to know what happened to their birth mother. Do it for Brittany, who deserves to come home and be at peace. Do it because it's your duty to serve and protect. Our deepest gratitude to Ted Tobias for sharing his time, knowledge, and experience. Thank you. Would you like to show your support for the Hide and Seek podcast? Find our Instagram and Facebook page by searching Hide and Seek Podcast. Like and follow to hear updates on past seasons as they become available and stay up to date on season three. Find our discussion group by searching Hide and Seek Discussion Group on Facebook. The Hide and Seek podcast is hosted, directed, edited, and produced by James Basinger. Written, edited, and produced by Sarah Joe. 
Engineered, Mixed, and Mastered by Nudons Audio Engineering. Director of Photography is Ethan Schatz. Our graphic design is created by Jordan Robinson. A special thanks to all those involved in our ground team and to our Patreon supporters. Thank you for helping make our investigations possible. Thank you for listening to Hard to Sink. Okay. Peace out.